0: Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. Christ-centeredness and the Self Following on from the last episode on the human being, we now move on to the topic of the Self. The Self is one of the biggest topics of discussion in modernity. The entirety of Western civilization functions on self-centeredness. For example, from an economic point of view, the driving force behind the market is that most items are marketed to satisfy our desires they also call it self-interest. From a political point of view, the power to govern rests with the people, regardless of whether what they choose is right or wrong. What they will is now what is right. Anyone who goes against the will commits the ultimate public offense. This must necessarily be so if power rests with the people. And since Western civilization is self-centered, Unfortunately, from a religious point of view, churches must be there to be pleasing to us. Otherwise, we will simply go to other churches, and those that are most pleasing will grow, and those that are not will become smaller. It has even gotten to the point where sermons have become lectures that communicate self-help strategies that help people to grow personally and be productive at work and life. But is there really a problem with this latter form of thinking? Not at all. Indeed, this is necessary, especially in our civilization, and much of this thinking which is called self-help overlaps with religion and in some cases is based on Christian teachings itself, like the concept of servant leadership. Isn't this needed? Shouldn't we use the church to preach this? To consider how to answer these questions, think about the following analogy. Hospitals first began as a charitable endeavor of churches in the Byzantine Empire many, including pagans, were served in these hospitals. Now if all people went to church for was for hospital treatment from diseases, and that was it, then the church will not have fulfilled its mission by proclaiming the gospel. It would have shown it in their actions, but not brought the people it was serving any closer to knowing the gospel. To give one more analogy, think of the school. Schools offer lunches. In many cases, entire schools receive free lunches But if the main thing students went to school for was lunch, then they would be nowhere near the heart of what the school stands for. In the same way, if the main thing people went to church for was self-help methodology, they would still not receive the message of the gospel and learn that what the church provides is communicating the beauty of God and guides us to approach that beauty and how it transforms the way we look at everything, from the vast expanses of the universe to how we see our neighbors and our place in the community and how we participate in that community. The Church teaches us how to live according to the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then we become His ambassadors to the world, giving them a reflection of His life in our own lives. That necessarily means entering into a community of believers journeying together, and realizing that we can't do things on our own, but we need grace. Self-help is about developing what is already within under the guidance of a coach. Christianity is about growing according to the One who created us, who has now come to dwell in us, and by imitating His very life in our Lord Jesus Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, then we fulfill what it means to be created in the image of God. So to make it simple, religious self-centeredness is all based on the question of what is helpful. It begins with the self. Yet in early Christianity, questions did not begin with the self, but they began with Christ. Now some of you, even some of the very religious of you, may be getting uncomfortable. Aren't sermons helping you live your life in society to be personally and professionally successful the heart of Christianity? The answer to that question is no. In the early church beginning with the preaching of the apostles, Christianity is not about teachings those are actually secondary because they are dependent on something else. Christianity is first about the person of Christ. Thus, Christianity was focused on living according to the life of Christ. Any teaching is simply to clarify what it means to live according to the life of Christ. They can't be separated from the person of Christ. If we approach our Lord Jesus only as a teacher of doctrine— Then we have not understood what Christianity is. If we understand the teachings of Christ as grounded in his person, then we understand what Christianity is. The central message of Christianity is that our Lord Jesus Christ is God who became human so that as a physician he may heal us from our sins. What he restores to us is the health of the soul, but that healing is accomplished only by the imitation of Christ. This approach to life is called Christ-centeredness. The early church was defined by its Christ-centeredness. That Christ-centeredness was manifested in three clear ways. One, how early Christians viewed and framed their lives. Two, in interpreting the scriptures. And three, in worship. On viewing and framing our lives, in the book on the Holy Spirit, St. Basil wrote a concise expression of what Christ-centeredness means. He said, Our God and Savior's plan for man is His restoration from the fall and His return from the alienation of disobedience to kinship with God. For the sake of this are Christ's sojourn in the flesh, His example of an evangelical way of life, His sufferings, His cross, His burial, His resurrection. And so, the man who is saved receives back that original adopted sonship by imitating Christ. The imitation of Christ accordingly is necessary for the perfection of life, not only in his living example of humility, patience, and freedom from anger, but also in that of his very death. As Paul, the imitator of Christ, says, I am conformed to his death, that I may somehow obtain the resurrection from the dead. From the Book on the Holy Spirit, section 1535. So, our Lord Jesus Christ is and has become the exemplar human being. Another example of this Christ-centeredness leading us to view and frame our lives in light of Christ comes in the mid-2nd century. In the mid-2nd century, St. Polycarp of Smyrna, who was a disciple of the Apostle John and who shepherded the Church of Smyrna for at least 40 years, was martyred. This event is recounted in the short account The Martyrdom of Polycarp. After he was martyred, the Jews who were present at the martyrdom asked the Roman magistrates not to hand over his body to the Christians, saying, Or else they that is the Christians, may abandon the crucified one and begin to worship this man. The account continues, saying, All this was done at the instigation and insistence of the Jews who even watched when we were about to take the body from the fire, they did not know that we will never be able either to abandon the Christ who suffered the salvation of the whole world of those who are saved, the blameless on behalf of sinners, or to worship anyone else. For we worship this one, who is the Son of God, but the martyrs we love as disciples and imitators of the Lord, as they deserve on account of their matchless devotion to their own king and teacher. May we also become their partners and fellow disciples. From the Martyrdom of Polycarp, Chapter 17, Sections 2-3 through In that martyrdom, several parallels in the martyrdom of St. Polycarp with the passion and death of our Lord Jesus Christ are pointed out. For example, he was betrayed by his own household, and he was martyred on a Friday. Of course, reading the text also shows the differences, But what is clear is that the early Christians understood their own lives in the light of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another place where the Church applied its Christ-centeredness was in the interpretation of the Scriptures. Perhaps this is where you first come across the word Christ-centered or Christocentric as it is used in this context. I remember when I first started attending an Orthodox Christian Bible study, the priest was teaching on Genesis and he read many of the stories in a Christ-centered light. He was very clear from the outset that the church fathers read this story in this fashion. For example, he saw in Isaac a type or pattern of Christ. Isaac was the beloved son of Abraham, and when he was commanded to sacrifice him, Isaac carried the wood. Our Lord Jesus is the beloved Son of God, and he carried the cross. Then, when Isaac reached the top of the mountain, He was bound hand and foot to the wood, like our Lord Jesus was bound to the cross on Mount Golgotha. But the pattern stops where God sends an angel to command Abraham to not touch Isaac, but this was a test of his faith. He then sees a ram on the mountain that God has provided for a sacrifice. This ram, to be sacrificed to God, is a type of our Lord Jesus who offered the perfect sacrifice to God on behalf of humanity. Then three days later, Abraham and Isaac returned from the mountain. Three days later, our Lord Jesus rose from the dead. I remember speaking with my Christian friends at school about this interpretation of the scriptures, which I found fascinating and beautiful, but they all gave me strange looks. Later on, even pastors I spoke to also gave me strange looks, like, why would we ever want to interpret the Bible in this fashion? But this was the fashion in which the Bible was interpreted in the early church, because by seeing Christ and all these other people throughout the Old Testament in a concrete way, the model for us to imitate in Him becomes deep and clear, and soon we begin to see Him everywhere, and this causes us to grow into His likeness if we choose to model our lives on it. Christ-centeredness also revealed itself in the worship of the church. In the early church, for a person to enter the church, that person had to be baptized. But what was the point of baptism? It was purely understood in a Christ-centered fashion. In his book on the Holy Spirit, St. Basil explains at length what it means to receive baptism, explaining it solely in terms of imitating Christ. He says, How then are we made in the likeness of his death? We were buried with him through baptism. So what is the manner of the burial, and what good comes from this imitation? First, the following of the former life must be broken. But this cannot be unless one is begotten again, in the words of the Lord. For regeneration, as the name itself indicates, is the beginning of a second life. So to begin the second life, the preceding one must be ended. It is just as with those running up one side of the track and down the other a stop and pause comes between the opposite movements. So it is also with the change of lives. It seems that death must come between the two lives, bringing an end to what has come before and giving a beginning to what comes next. How then do we descend to hell? We imitate the burial of Christ through baptism. It is as if the bodies of the baptized are buried in the water, Baptism symbolically indicates the setting aside of the works of the flesh, according to the Apostle, who says, You were circumcised with the circumcision not made by human hands, and putting off the body of the flesh, in the circumcision of Christ, being buried with him in baptism. It is as if the soul is cleansed of the filth that has clung to it from a carnal mind, as it is written, You wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And so we ritually cleanse ourselves, but not in the manner of the Jews who do so with each defilement. Rather, we know one cleansing, saving baptism. Rather, we know one cleansing, saving baptism, since there is one death for the sake of the world, and one resurrection from the dead, of which baptism is the type. For the sake of this, the Lord, who directs our life, established with us the covenant of baptism which contains a type of death and of life. The water fulfills the image of death, while the Spirit furnishes the pledge of life. And what was sought is now clear to us, namely, why water is associated with the Spirit. It is because there are two purposes laid down in baptism. First, to abolish the body of sin, so it no longer bears fruit unto death. And second, to give life in the Spirit and so bear fruit in holiness. The water furnishes the image of death, just as the body is received in burial. But the Spirit infuses life-giving power, renewing our souls from the death of sin to their original life. This then is what it means to be begotten again from water and the Spirit. As death is accomplished in the water, our life is worked through the Spirit. In three immersions and in the same number of invocations, the great mystery of baptism is accomplished in order that the type of death may be fully formed, and the baptized be enlightened in their souls by the handing on of the knowledge of God. Thus, if there is some grace in the water, it is not from the nature of the water, but from the presence of the Spirit. For baptism is not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience. The Lord, therefore, in restoring us to the resurrected life, sets forth the gospel's whole way of life, by establishing as laws of conduct freedom from anger, the suffering of evil, freedom from the filth of loving pleasure, freedom from the love of money. In this way we are set aright and by design partake of those things which the age to come naturally possesses. Now if someone would say, as a matter of definition, that the gospel is a prefiguring of the resurrected life, he would not, it seems to me, go astray of what is proper from on the Holy Spirit, section 1535. Now, it should be noted that baptism was not received at will. Those who sought to enter the Church had to complete a course of learning before receiving baptism. But when persecution was high, many died without receiving the baptism of water. St. Basil says something which exemplifies the universal attitude of the early Church on the matter. He says, Now in their struggles on behalf of piety, Some have already suffered death for the sake of Christ, not by imitation, but in truth. These men need no water as a symbol for salvation, because they have been baptized in their own blood. I say this not to reject baptism and water, but to knock down the arguments of those who are roused up against the Spirit, who mix what ought to be kept distinct, and compare what defies comparison. Again from On the Holy Spirit, section 1536. Now, the most basic worship service of the early Church, which is the liturgy, was centered on the Eucharist, that is, Christ. Interestingly, in the development of the liturgy, many prayers were added including what is called the Fraction Prayer, which is the breaking of the bread offered up shortly before Communion. This prayer changes depending on the feast and season of the Church. On Holy Thursday in the Coptic Orthodox Church, The Fraction Prayer is a recounting of the story of the sacrifice of Isaac and how it foreshadowed the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. So thus in Christ-centeredness how we view and frame our lives, how we interpret the scriptures, and how we worship become integrated as one dynamic whole. So how do we apply this? I will point out that we can't apply this as simply as some type of knowledge to use for a certain goal, but rather this is an attitude a disposition, a way of seeing that will transform everything we see and do. How we apply this is best summed up in the end of a beautiful prayer by St. Patrick called The Breastplate of St. Patrick. Of all prayers I know, this is the one which perfectly embodies what it means to live a Christ-centered life. It reads near the end, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ at my right, Christ at my left, Christ when lying down, Christ in sitting, Christ in rising up, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. From sections 8 and 9. It shows how this becomes a way of life, of simply being, and of seeing everything, and in so doing, depending totally on our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, DanielHannahWriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books, including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible, to spirituality, to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.